Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Angus McNabb, Managing Consultant for York 9 FC of the Canadian Premier League, which starts its bubble tournament this week. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Jordan Angeli, and Pablo Maurer, along with many others. So check those interviews out if you can. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Angus McNabb on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Taylor Rockwell of our partner, The Total Soccer Show. Taylor, thanks for joining me. How are you? I was doing well until I heard that you had Angus McNabb on the show, and now I feel like my parents didn't even try to give me a cool-sounding name. Angus McNabb, for real? (laughs) It's actually really interesting because I learned a lot talking to Gus about the Canadian Premier League, which I didn't know that much about, but it's pretty interesting, and it's actually getting a fair amount of investor interest from people as that league expands. Mm -hmm. And it is expanding. Uh, Atletico Madrid now has a team in Ottawa. They're going to have this 18 tournament starting this week called the Island Games on Prince Edward Island. We can watch these games in America or the U.S. So I'm all about the Canadian Premier League. Well, that's kind of a lie. There's a lot of stuff going on this week. But I'm I'm interested (laughs) in the Canadian Premier League. I've never heard a sentence more accurately sum up like where we are in terms of global soccer better than Atletico Madrid now have a team in Ottawa. That seemed, I know exactly what you mean. That's still an amazing sentence to hear said out loud. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, lots to talk about, obviously. And UEFA has come back in a very big way mm-hmm. uh, the last few days with Champions League round of 16 games as we get to the quarterfinals and single elimination. We've got Europa League with some pretty good matchups. Um, and we still have the MLS tournament. So let's dive in with UEFA Champions League here and a few of the stories of the last couple of days. Maybe at the top, Juventus, mm-hmm. nine times straight Italian champion, eliminated by Lyon in the round of 16. Maurizio Sarri fired a week after winning Serie A. Andrea Pirlo is the new manager of Juventus. Again, a strange time in uh, global soccer. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, this is Andrea Pirlo's second managerial position, though it's worth noting his first one was when he was appointed Juve under-23 coach about nine days ago. So maybe not a lot of uh, time to learn things, but it does feel as though maybe that uh, the U23 appointment was made with an eye towards, eventually we're going to fire Sorry, We're not sure when it's going to be, but when that does happen, you will become our manager, and that is exactly how that's gone down. I don't get this one. And I think this is one of the dumber boardroom decisions we've ever seen, actually, in terms of hiring a coach who is not ready. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a situation like, you know, Zidane and Pep Guardiola had at least, you know, put in some time, whether it was Guardiola at Barca B or mm-hmm. whether it was Zidane working as an assistant to Carlo Ancelotti at Real Madrid. And I think Juventus has actually been pretty smart over the years. And this just seems like we're going to hire a guy who is sort of a, you know, he's a figure at the club, Mm -hmm. beloved by fans, but has not proven himself as a coach at all. And we're going to put him on a running a, a team that success is measured by did you win Champions League or not? And you can still win 
the Italian title and get fired. I think I agree with you. I think there are two things at play here. I should say, I agree with you, period. I think there are two things at play here. There we go. Now it's clear. Uh, the first is that I think they were pretty done with Sari. I think that's a big part of this. Uh, uh, Andrea Agnelli came out, addressed the media after they win the title, after they win the Scudetto, never mentions his current manager. Also worth noting, from what I understand, uh, Miralem Pjanic was his biggest supporter in the locker room. Miralem Pjanic has already agreed to leave to join Barcelona on that swap deal. So those two things right there, and even Sari's post-game comments were a little bit like, yeah, we, we would have played well if we hadn't been eliminated. I would have been happy with the result. Like, that's not the type of thing you say when you're fighting desperately for your job. So I think he probably felt like the writing was on the wall. And I think also for the Juve board, maybe there's an element of, we thought this was going to be just sort of slam dunk, no problem. This is going to work really, really well. We brought in this manager whose philosophy, it turns out, was at odds with what we wanted to do. So we want to bring in somebody who's going to be steeped in the Juve tradition, obviously in the latter part of his career. In the first part, he's steeped in the AC Milan tradition, but Pirlo uh, finishes up with Juve. Uh, we're not going to talk about NYCFC in terms of where he is in his coaching career, but uh, I think then it makes sense that you have this sort of club legend such as he is coming in, uh, and the idea is like, yeah, you're going give, to give him the reins, and he is going to understand what Juve are trying to do, but it's probably also going to be a little bit indebted to the board for getting this appointment so early, and so maybe he will also be less combative in the media and public, and so I think that's probably where they're thinking, rather than going with a, a more proven name that might then want another $100 million spent or big names, otherwise his system won't work. I'll put it this way. I would be concerned if Andrea Pirlo was hired as the NYCFC coach. I think I would actually be more concerned about that, strangely enough, because <laughs> at least with Juve, there's a couple things there. I mean, uh, it's worth noting he gets his license, I believe, from uh, Covecciano, which is their sort of training school, their training facility for uh, Italian coaches. That is, first of all, it's really demanding to get in there, but it is the equivalent, like from a soccer standpoint, of like Harvard, Stanford, Oxford rolled together. So he will come out of that with a almost a doctorate in managing, but obviously then the question is how does that extend to your presence on the field? Maybe communicating in Italian is a little bit more helpful. Maybe because it's an Italian team, he gets that benefit as well because he has the backing of the board in Juve. I think that that all makes a little bit more sense. But that said, I'm still with you that for a club the size of Juventus, who are so focused on maintaining their relevance, doing everything they can to remain in the spotlight, it's a potential risk here, and we will see how it goes. Uh, I do think the big question for me will be, like, there's there were the criticism of Thierry Henry at Monaco was that he sort of couldn't communicate what he wanted because things come so naturally to him that it's hard for him to then know, like, oh, you're having trouble doing this. And the reports I always heard were that he would end up, like, doing the drills in training to show the players how to do it. And there is that thing of if you're so good as a professional, are you able to like effectively communicate what you need as a manager. And so if Pirlo can do that, that probably puts some nerves at ease. But for now, I'm guessing there are some concerned Juve fans out there. I mean, I like Pirlo personally, and I hope he succeeds. I just feel like he's been set up to fail here, mm-hmm. and this could really hurt his budding managerial career. One, one last question about this. If I were running the Juventus board, my first call would be to the agent for Mauricio Pochettino. Is that your question? Why didn't they do that? Like, do we, like, as far as we know, that didn't happen. No, I don't believe so. I don't know who has reached out to him. There continue to be conversations about him with Barcelona, uh, and I'm sure there are other teams that are interested, and he'll, he'll go somewhere eventually. My only thought there is that maybe it's just that his system is so specific that it would require 
more investment, more players coming in at times at a time when Juve don't want to have massive expenditures, massive investments in new players. So maybe it's just that they wanted to go with somebody who would work within the constraints they're given, as opposed to Pochettino, who might agitate for new players and uh, a bit more financial support. I had always thought that because Pochettino played at Espanyol for so long, that crosstown rival Barcelona was not something he would consider. But like he said that, he... <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but if. If he's changed his mind about that, that wouldn't be a bad fit, uh, considering I don't think Kike Setien is long for Barcelona. Oh, no? You don't think he's, he's, and, he's loved, <laughs> beloved there? No? And, and we'll, as we'll talk about soon here, we think that Barcelona could be in for a really rude awakening later yeah. this week. Yeah. Um, but um, I did a, a poll on my Twitter I don't do these very often, but where I asked, where do you think Pochettino will work next? And I got like you know 3,500 votes. And PSG was far and away the winning choice. About 50% of, of respondents. I think Dortmund was next, followed by uh, Man United and then Tottenham again, which would be kind of funny. Um, that's, man, I just want to see tough. him work again. Yeah. I, I think about it like because Hante Fleck isn't going anywhere at Bayern. It stands to reason Zidane is pretty safe at Madrid. You're absolutely right. Pochettino has previously said he would never manage Barcelona. I think recently started to back off that just a tiny bit, maybe because the other offers were not flooding in. But yeah, I mean, if Juve appoint Pirlo, if you've got Conte in charge at Inter, you don't expect him to go anywhere. Lazio seem pretty set. Yeah, the options for him do sort of dwindle pretty quickly. Uh, I'm sure he'll happily wait around until a big offer comes in. But it's not since like Jose Mourinho first left Chelsea has there been a big day manager who sort of has been out of a job and is this sort of looming shadow over any coach who starts to struggle with a big name team. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, let's talk about Man City eliminating Real Madrid. And this game will forever oh be remembered for Rafael Varane screwing up massively twice. He's going to have it, I think, professionally removed from his memory. That's the only way I think he can proceed. Because, yes, the, the goals are very, very obviously his fault. I think it is also pretty representative of the problems Madrid had across the board in this game. But, but it's rare that you get two goals that are just so obviously on one player. <laughs> He did front up after the game and took, you know, took the blame. He said for for the loss and, um, you know, it's just it's interesting because I actually thought Madrid had a chance to turn this one around. Yeah, and I know some people who had actually bet on Madrid to win the tournament because they could have gotten a really nice return on it. Um, but for City, I think this is obviously a, a, something good to go into the quarterfinals on. They're not going to have to face Juventus because they're going to go up against Lyon. And Pep Guardiola has to be feeling pretty good right now. I, I would assume he does because though the goals come from mistakes, it's Varane is dispossessed for the first and then has a very bad backwards header uh, trying to get it back to the goalkeeper and does not for the second. It is still the pressure and presence of Man City players is what causes those mistakes. And it is like if you watch the buildup to City's first goal, it's Real Madrid's self-build-up is what I think I wrote on Twitter. Like, it's just they keep putting themselves in worse and worse positions because Man City just completely block off every single option. And eventually, Varane doesn't know what to do. It just takes a heavy touch, and then Gabriel Jesus pounces. But there are multiple times in this game when uh, a player would turn it over. Casemiro has a really bad one in the second half where he just feels the pressure coming and tries a no-look pass and plays it right to somebody on City, and they're away. And it's a 5v3, 40 yards from Real Madrid's goal. And that sloppiness is not something you usually see from a team like Real Madrid, which then, yeah, I agree with you. It makes it seem to me that Pep Guardiola has... 
I guess, revitalized the team, gotten a bit more energy into them. I thought for sure that they were going to look sluggish as well, and this would not be the most exciting of games. Instead, City seemed very much up for it, and maybe they are feeling like, yeah, we're going to be in the Champions League uh, next year anyway, but it wouldn't be the worst idea to win the tournament this year anyway. Yeah, and Real Madrid had been you know, just a machine since the mm-hmm. restart, and obviously it hurt not to have Sergio Ramos in this game. And, and I, I do wonder if... If in some way, now, I don't know if this is the case, but do you think Ferran's in any way unsettled not having his his usual center back partner in that game? Do you think that has any impact or is that just me spewing nonsense? No, I think that's probably a, at least a small part of it. I think if you... Because, number one, if you have a center-back partner, like, they are your partner. You know how to play with them. You know when they're going to step. You have a bit more chemistry with them. If somebody else is just deputizing, stepping in, then you don't have that relationship. You don't have that rapport. Never mind the fact that that player that we're talking about is Sergio Ramos, is their captain, is their sort of the heart of that team, is their leader. And if you don't have him, if you're Varane, do you feel that desire to step up and maybe try to be the one who can lead that team? And do you then sort of get caught in situations where you then panic and make mistakes? That second goal especially. Especially the the header back, he just has no idea where Gabriel Jesus is. He checks him really fast and thinks like, oh, okay, this is a safe header. But the the miss to begin the play and then the bad header to finish it, it's just so not what we've come to expect from Real Madrid and especially Varane, especially Sergio Ramos, but Varane as well. I think you're absolutely right that there's probably something to be said for the lack of chemistry and consistency in that back line, I think was a little bit exposed on the day from uh, Man City. You know, everything's compressed because of this single elimination tournament. I think it's going to be really exciting. This is a real opportunity for Gabriel Jesus to show over the next week if they could go and win this thing that he is a bona fide starting number nine superstar for a for a really big team. And mm-hmm. he's he's always seemed a little bit not peripheral, but still supporting. And he, yeah. he, he's got a, a level to jump to here. I think he does, because Sergio Aguero is just, you know, he is the leading goal scorer for the club. He is this pivotal figure for them. So if you're not going to supplant him immediately, you're probably not going to beat anybody who's playing on the wings. So I think you're right then that the options are limited for Gabriel Jesus. This feels like a very good opportunity for him to show, hey, I can be the central figure. A lot of that depends on how Barcelona, how far they go in this competition. And I think a lot of that depends on Pep Guardiola, who we've seen in the past roll the dice in, in Champions League games and try different things. There's the one a few years ago... I think when he's with Bayern and he tries to man-mark Barcelona like across the field (laughs) and they get annihilated in the first 30 minutes. And it could go very well for City because we'll see some tactical gambling. It could go very poorly for them because we might see Pep try something totally random because it is single elimination and be punished. But if they're not going to be punished and they are going to score goals, it does feel like Gabriel Jesus is feeling it a little bit and feels like he is feeling that relationship with Raheem Sterling as well. You know what would be fun is if, and I don't know if they'll ever consider doing this, but we'll talk about the CBS coverage a little bit later here. Here. I think it would be fun if they spent a segment with what they feel are examples in the past of Pep overthinking Pep in Champions League elimination yeah. games and talking about specific examples and then smart Pep not overthinking Pep in other examples because obviously this guy's won Champions Leagues at Barcelona but I, I think that would be an interesting discussion I'd love to hear Roberto Martinez talk about that if he could be honest about that because uh, I, I love hearing him talk basically about soccer. But uh, I think that's a huge storyline too here, which is 
when you get to the quarterfinals and the semifinals of Champions League, for several years now, we've seen overthinking Pep quite a bit. I would 100% watch that and enjoy it very much, and I hope CBS is listening and poaches your idea, but maybe gives you credit. That'd be good. <laughs> so let's talk Barcelona. Um, people are smiling again for now. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's been quite a swing, you know? Lionel Messi was so upset at the end yep. of the, the, the league season in Spain, just and then... You know, Messi was fantastic again yep. in this game against Napoli. Comes in at 1-1 and basically just, you know, Messi takes over the first half. A ridiculous goal. Has a second goal that VAR disallows, which I'm still annoyed about. I guess the new rule for handballs, maybe that's the right call. But this was just Barcelona getting it done mm-hmm. and, and, and Messi looking kind of happy again. Yeah, I, I think Suarez is a big part of that. I think he really enjoys his relationship with Suarez. It's what we've talked about on a couple other occasions already, that when you know how to play with a person, it just makes it more fun. If you know, oh, he's going to look for the back heel here, I can count on that so I can make this run, or I know he's going to shoot here so I don't need to make that run, that relationship can be really effective, and it's also just fun to play with somebody who knows what you want to do and how to play with you, especially if you haven't had that person around. So I think you definitely saw the attack smiling, but I think we said the same thing about Chelsea that we've enjoyed Chelsea's attack, and they've looked very good in the attack, less so in the defense, and Bayern Munich found them out pretty effectively. So I, though Barcelona are scoring goals again, and, and there are some smiles, I would have some concerns if I were them about the, uh, the Bayern <laughs> Munich that they're going to be facing. I mean, on name alone, Barcelona-Bayern Munich is a fantastic Champions mm-hmm. League quarterfinal. I could see like a 5-0 here to yeah. Bayern Munich. I really could. Now, conversely, I could also see Lionel Messi go off for a 15, 20 minute jag and Neuer do something kind of dumb and somehow Barcelona is in this game. Mm-hmm. Maybe I, even possibly winning this game. So I, I, I'm, I'm a little all over the place right now. I mean, I think you, you legally are not allowed to write off a team that has Lionel Messi in the, on the roster. So yeah, I think you can never say, oh, this is definitely going to be Bayern Munich. They're going to win. There's no point in even discussing this because Barcelona can find, them, find ways to shoot themselves in the foot, but they can also find ways to emerge victorious when you did not think that would happen. It's an interesting match, especially because you have strengths and vulnerabilities for both teams. Like Hansi Flick has proven himself to be a very good manager, but I wouldn't say, at least to my understanding, that it's because he is some sort of tactical innovator or genius. I think he is putting people in the position they need to be in to thrive, and they are doing just that. Kike Setien obviously has not had the strongest of, of debut seasons for Barcelona, or I guess not quite debut seasons, but uh, he hasn't had the, the success I think they would have hoped for. So I don't see him necessarily being able to get the team on board with any sort of tactical masterminds, any sort of massive change. So I think it's going to come down to just the two teams playing the way they do and who can do that job better and who can present less opportunities to the other. Like It, it just feels very straightforward, this game, in a way that could then see it 5-0 or 1-0 or 3-3. I really don't know how it will go, but I think it will be entertaining. I mean, Barca- or Bayern Munich's been an absolute machine uh-huh. uh, for a while now. Yeah. And I think this Chelsea game gave them the opportunity with low stakes to get things going again in a game environment after some time off. And Lewandowski seems like he's in great form, very motivated. Uh, I do wonder, do you think Jerome Boateng like ever thinks about having his soul taken from him by Lionel Messi that one time. (laughs) 
I mean, anytime you lose your soul, you're going to think about it a little bit. Obviously, you won't be able to feel very much about it because you no longer have that soul. But yeah, I think he probably is haunted by that memory. And I think Lionel Messi has a lot of, I guess, uh, soul scalps in his locker from all of the many people he has humiliated. There's a few of those uh, in that game against uh, Napoli as well. So yes, I think Jerome Boateng is probably in good company with all of the people that have been humiliated by Messi. I'm looking forward to this game, and I, I just feel like if... I. Bayern Munich should be a heavy favorite, mm-hmm. and the only way Barcelona has a chance is if Messi just has one of these career games again. Yeah. We've seen him do this before when he just completely takes over a game, and the prospect of, of that is something that I'm excited to see if he can find a way to do that because he's he's more of a, to me, this is more of a one-man team than Barcelona has basically had in the last decade. I think that is definitely fair. I think if you're a Barca fan who's looking for any source of optimism, I, I don't know if this is necessarily what you're looking for, but like, <laughs> and I say this slightly in jest, but mostly seriously, if you told me that Frank Lampard and Chelsea forgot they still had to play this game and had sent everybody on vacation and then frantically recalled them like 48 hours before the game, I would believe you. They looked completely <laughs> on the beach in this one. So many mistakes, so slow, just a complete lack of sharpness from start to finish. So it's not as though Bayern destroyed the Chelsea team that we have seen be very good. This seemed like a Chelsea team that knew they were already eliminated from the first leg, knew they had to play this game, but were not up for it. A couple people already had flip-flops and beach shorts on, and I think you see the result go the way it does. So it's worth maybe a slight grain of salt with this result when you then look at Barcelona, because they are just a better team who I have to believe will be at least somewhat more motivated than Chelsea. So let's look at the Wednesday quarterfinal, which is really intriguing, actually. Atalanta against PSG, and this is an Atalanta team that is a heck of a lot of fun to watch. Maybe the best story from a story perspective in European soccer this season of a team that is punched above its weight. They've been doing this for a while now. They score a ton of goals, and they're playing a PSG team that has had very little game action in recent months, Mm -hmm. and will be without Kylian Mbappe, will be without Marco Verratti, will be without the suspended Angel Di Maria. And I'm going at Atalanta here, man. I, I, yeah. I, I just, I'm having a, I, I know Neymar is going to be in this game. I know PSG has a lot of talented players. This just seems like the recipe for a classic PSG exit from Champions League. It sure does. <laughs> um, and, and I would have agreed with you before, uh, before we started recording. Grant was kind enough to inform me of all those players who won't be playing for PSG. Even a full-strength PSG, I think I would have taken Atalanta. <laughs> for some of the reasons you've already alluded to, I think the most goals in Serie A for, by one team since like 1952, I think, something like that. So they score tons of goals, which is to say that this isn't just, uh, and no disrespect to Atletico Madrid, but this isn't that they sit really deep and they really, really frustrate you and you have to find a way through and then they hit you on the counter. That's an acceptable way to play in any, in any soccer game. But Atalanta are much more attacking. They are much more exciting. They score goals. They have people all over the place. Papu Gomez, I've talked about him before. I will continue to talk about him because I love him. Uh, will sometimes be leading the line. Will sometimes be be between the two center backs, will sometimes be on the left, and sometimes he'll be on the right. He moves wherever he wants. He apparently uh, said recently that he uses the referee as a way to find space because the referee himself is trying to find space. So if you position yourself around around the ref, that can work to your advantage. He He has these just moments of popping up where you do not expect him to be, and if you're a team that isn't really ready to defend that, it's really challenging to know who needs to go with him and who needs to track and when you need to leave him for somebody else. And if you have two people go with him, obviously that and creates an opportunity for somebody else. PSG, 
are known to uh, have issues in the knockout rounds of the Champions League and maybe not raise their game when they need to or think they'll be able to coast. And I don't know if they'll do that here, but I am with you that I think Atalanta should be feeling confident provided they play the game we've seen them play in the past. I'm already cranking up my Neymar gif uh, of him on the sideline last year looking all <laughs> shocked, yeah. you know, and scared when Man United eliminated them. Um, so <laughs> looking forward to that game on Wednesday. We're not going to break down all of those Champions League quarterfinals because we have another podcast episode coming out on Thursday. Uh, I want to ask you one question about Europa League sure. as it enters the quarterfinals. You're a Man United guy. I am. Would you pick Man United or the field to win the Europa League at this point? Not surprisingly, I thought a lot about this. I think in the end I would go with the field, much as it pains me to say. I don't think that's a reverse jinx. It might be. But uh, the quarter, if, you, if you're Manchester United, if you make it to the final, then you're playing the quarter, the semi, and the final. That's three games in 11 days, and what we saw at the end of the season was their depth or lack thereof causing significant problems. They don't play really any of their major starters against Lask because that game was pretty much a foregone conclusion. So you can throw that one out, but you've got to keep everybody healthy and make sure everybody is able to go. I don't know if they will be able to get everybody on the field consistently the way they would need to, whereas I think some of the other teams are going to be a bit more motivated. I also think Manchester United, having already qualified for the Champions League, don't have that pressure to make sure that they win Europa League to get a Champions League spot. So maybe we also don't see them you know, go pedal to the floor as hard as they can in these games because they don't want to risk injury. They don't want to miss messing up their uh, next season, which I think starts, what, in like 12 hours, something like that? <laughs> Have I told you how excited I am about the possibility of Inter and its ex-Man United guys playing against Man United in the semifinals? I mean, you have not, but it will be fascinating. <laughs> I, yeah, Lukaku, I think, will have a point to prove. Alexis Sanchez, I would assume, would have a point to prove, and I don't know if Ashley Young would or not, but I'm sure he'll be there as well. I, I just think it would be that would be a fun game. Uh, and as much as I like Bayer Leverkusen, uh, I would prefer to see Inter win that quarterfinal and get a matchup against Man United. Anytime um, you have Antonio Conte on the sidelines, I think you're in, in for some entertainment, <laughs> yeah. Um, I also want to ask you about your thoughts on CBS, which came in with a bang last week uh, with its Champions League coverage, its Europa League coverage. What's kind of crazy to me is not only do they have a 90-minute pregame show from London uh, on CBS All Access, the pay channel. They they have a two-hour pregame show on free TV on the CBS HQ, which, which is an entirely different studio show from the U.S. with Ian Joy, Poppy Miller, uh, DeMarcus Beasley, and, and the cast of characters. Um, you know, it was just the first week, but I was pretty impressed. So I'll ask you then, because you have the background in television that I do not. You've got the face for TV. I've got a voice for <laughs> podcasting, I think. I don't know. Sometimes sometimes maybe not. But for you, Grant, like how much work goes into that type of program if it is going to be that long? How much preparation, how much effort is there, do you think, from CBS, especially given the abbreviated time frame they're working within? It's a lot. For a, for a two-hour pregame show or even a 90-minute pregame show. But I also think that's one reason why these have been good because you're allowed with more time to have longer discussions, which is what European TV is more like than yeah. U.S. TV. So I remember being uh, part of Fox's World Cup 2018 group, and I think it was always frustrating uh, for the guys, and I wasn't one of them who did like halftime pregame and postgame, 
because they there were so many ads and there wasn't much time and, and there was frustration that they didn't have that much time to actually make a point or have a discussion. And I've really enjoyed both of these CBS shows and especially the, the, the one based in London in terms of the, the discussion that they can kind of air it out a little bit mm-hmm. and, and you can hear Roberta Martinez go back and forth with Kate Abdo and Jamie Carragher and Michael Richards and Alex Scott. You know, it depends who they have in there. Um, but there's so many elements that go into doing a 90-minute show or a two-hour pregame show. And, you know, I think there's actually a pretty big gap in the amount of resources CBS is devoting to these shows. Like the the the, the A-team over in London for pay TV is that there's a, a lot of money going into that show. Mm-hmm. I, the, maybe the biggest surprise to me, and I watched both shows last week was that the gap in resources between the two shows is not that big of a gap in quality. Uh, and, and to me, that was pretty impressive for the free TV. So like it, like for listeners out there who really don't want to pay money for the pay TV one, and it, you should be able to get a free trial this month anyway, but, and, but I would suggest you watch the free show, pregame show on CBS HQ, and then watch the free broadcast on Univision if you don't want to spend any money. And that's not because the pay show for CBS is bad. It's very uh-huh. good. Um, but like I thought like they had Fabrizio Romano, who's a stud on transfers on mm-hmm. the free CBS show. And he had a real-time report on Pirlo getting the Juventus job. You almost yeah. never get to break news and like big news in real time on live TV. Um, and I thought it was interesting they didn't have him on the pay show. Like he's he's the man. And then I really liked Christina Uncle, the officiating yeah. expert, who was on the HQ show and had some really good stuff about how she interpreted the decisions made in the Juventus Lyon game. Those those two big penalty calls mainly. She thought both were the wrong call. Hmm. And I was I'm surprised that they aren't using an officiating expert on the pay CBS show, if that makes sense. You so, want Dr. You want you just you're just trying to get Dr. Joe work, I think. That could be it too. Uh, Dr. Joe is fantastic as well. I, I just like, and then like on the, on the free CBS show, they had like Jerome Boateng on for an interview. They had Luis Garcia on for an interview. Mm-hmm. Like it's possible that these two shows are the best soccer shows in American soccer. Like, like that's crazy. I think they've made some definitely smart choices in terms of who they have brought in. I would like to see maybe more Americans in there. I think the choice to set uh, yeah. for the studio show to be in London limits that opportunity a little bit. But even like DeMarcus Beasley being brought in, because the question there would be, uh, like, you know, Americans don't have a ton of experience in the Champions League, so why would we want an American to be there talking about an experience they haven't had? I mean, DeMarcus Beasley, I think I'm correct in saying, is still the American who has gone the furthest in that competition. Maybe Christian Pulisic with Dortmund has has since eclipsed that, but Karavsky has Karavsky won with Dortmund, but Beasley played there we go. <laughs> when, okay. he, when he went to the semis <laughs> in 2005. So, like, even that, like, that makes sense. Like, I think that's a logical person to have in there, and a person that I think we haven't seen properly valued necessarily for what he can bring uh, as a commentator and a left back. Obviously, we've appreciated that. My other question I had for you, which was, I recently saw a like behind the scenes photo of match of the day. 
How much of those sets are green screen? Because that absolutely blew my mind that they're essentially sitting just with a wall of green all around them, and that's how they do their, their fancy studio sets. Yeah, that was actually never the case for when I did stuff okay. with Fox, whether it was on site in you know World Cups or uh, in the Fox studio out in L.A. Um, it was, so, that was so strange to me. I, I did not realize that like almost everything that you see when you're watching, say, Match of the Day is green screened in. It was odd. It was definitely strange. <laughs> I'm glad that you all are doing that. I think CBS probably have a little bit. But even their the sort of design aesthetic and, and the schemes they've used, the lighting, I think I've, I've enjoyed all of it so far. So well done, CBS. Yeah, the only nitpick I had actually was their commentators, I thought, for the Barcelona-Napoli game. And Barcelona fans, I know, didn't, didn't like the broadcast either, like the guys calling the game. They thought it was they switched over to Univision. My guy Kevin Williams in Chicago. Was that, was that because of a bias or just because they didn't like what he was saying? They didn't think they, he, they were prepared enough to know enough about the Barcelona situation. Ah, so. uh, okay. That, that's fair. That is a frustrating thing when there's a commentator who's not quite sure of like who the player is or what the situation is. You do want them to have a little bit more info to bring to the equation, yeah. Because I think what happens occasionally, and you see this sometimes during World Cup, sometimes during continental competitions, is that people who are based in England mm-hmm. know all about the English teams and what's happening yep. in England, and they don't know nearly as much about the continental teams. Uh, yes. <laughs> that is, it's why when Yaya Torre moved to Man City, nobody knew who he was. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk MLS final. This sure. Tuesday, Portland, Orlando. Not the two teams maybe we were expecting heading into this tournament, oh, no? especially in, in Orlando's case. Yeah. Um, who do you like in this game? What are your thoughts heading into it? Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, uh, the good folks, Joe and Jordan over at MLS Assist, did a very nice uh, sort of abbreviated preview of this game, if you want to check that one out. that they, I'm basically going to crib some of their notes, but it's essentially Portland not wanting the ball versus Orlando wanting the ball. I think that's the, the, the big narrative, and it's how do Orlando find a way through Portland, I think, looking to hit on the break. I think I'm going to find myself pulling for Portland. I, I, like, I think I like... Uh, the the story that there will be with everything that's happening in Portland if they are able to be the champions. I like uh, Ibo Vissi doing everything he's been doing and scoring goals. Uh, and the Diegos, obviously, you've got to love them. But then for Oscar Pereja to have the success he's had, to have the turnaround that Orlando have had, to find Nani scoring goals again and looking happy and being confident, maybe he just needed uh, Lionel Messi to do the same and then he could feel uh, that happiness. Who knows? Although I think Nani's more of a Ronaldo guy. But either way, uh, I think this will be a really interesting matchup from a tactical standpoint. And then just for the thing you mentioned, which is that nobody really saw either one of these teams making it here. So you have sort of two teams who would both be very, very happy to win uh, are going to do everything they possibly can to be in a position they might not be in again. So, or at least not anytime soon. So I think it's going to be pretty fascinating, but I might be leaning a little bit Portland. Uh, that might also be because uh, last summer in Orlando was real hot and real humid and there's no water around. Uh, what about you, Grant? What do you think for this one? I'm leaning Portland on this one. And and Portland is a team that has won an MLS Cup before. They've gotten to another final a couple of years ago um, under Gio Savarese, who I've come to really like uh, as a coach. And I, I, I think it's good to put in perspective here because Portland has had success in the MLS playoffs before. This isn't that surprising to me. Yeah. That's it's fair. crazy that Orlando's in this <laughs> final. Like it like is off the charts insane. And, and, <laughs> Like, this is a club that has never made the MLS playoffs, Mm -hmm. that has had pretty incompetent ownership and leadership for for many years. Uh, Like, they deserve not to make the playoffs. And and they have a fan base that 
I think it's actually really important for them to start winning if they want to keep the fans yep. that they've had. Because you started to see last year, I thought, uh, the crowds not being as big and a real frustration in terms of how the Orlando fans felt about their team. And they built this amazing stadium there. They have had fans from the start. Um, and I do think this changes the equation, even based on what they've already done in this tournament, but especially if they could win this thing. And, you know, like, I'll call this a trophy if they win it. Like, this is a this is a trophy. Yeah, certainly. Um, much more than the, like, Campeones Cup. I can't quite call that a trophy. I'm sorry. I'm with you on that. I struggle with that one a little bit. But yeah, I think this is a, this is a, a worthy tro- trophy here. And I just am so impressed with what Oscar Perret has done in a short amount of time yeah. to do things. When you hear the players talk about it, talk about changing the culture. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's impressive. He's done that at Colorado. He's done that at Dallas. It maybe shouldn't be that surprising that he's doing that in Orlando, except he's doing it very quickly. And there haven't been that many new players to come in. And Nani is playing like the Nani that I thought we might see when he first came. He's been fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think to the, to, I agree with you about Nani. To your point about Pereja, it really it goes back to Juve and like bringing in Pirlo and thinking, well, this has worked for uh, Barcelona with Pep. This has worked for Madrid, Madrid with Zidane. Let's roll the dice and see what happens. Whereas I would argue Pereja is proving that it shows when you have a capable manager who understands the league and knows how to get the best results in that league, they find success. And I think having a very smart manager and very capable manager in charge is already a big difference for Orlando from what they've had in seasons past. And I think that certainly then makes you feel a little bit more confident. I think he probably also has done a good job of building around the specific skill sets of individual players like Nani to really allow him to thrive in a way that isn't just, hey, he's our best player, let's get the ball to him. That's an oversimplification of what other coaches have done. But I think there's something to be said for a manager figuring out how to get the best out of the player without simply just giving them the ball and hoping they figure it out themselves. I think it's worth reminding people that as bad as the U.S. soccer coaching search was for the men's national team job that Greg Berhalter got and, and like they interviewed two people. The other person they interviewed was Oscar Pereja. I was about to, I was going to mention that. I think there are probably still some people who are frustrated with the Burhalter hiring and the way that all <laughs> happened and would probably have preferred Pereja. But I, I am, I am increasingly coming around to what Burhalter is doing and I think he's doing a fine job. So with that said, yeah, I wouldn't have mind Pereja getting the gig and maybe when Burhalter moves on, maybe we see Pereja take that one too. I've taken the, the, the approach of, and I know some listeners are going to hate this, that like is, is, as poor as the U.S. soccer search was, I think they settled on a pretty good choice. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, yeah, we're definitely going to get some annoyed people about this one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I think there have been moments where I was confused about what Burhalter was doing. And forgive me if this sounds incredibly hipster, but there is something to be said for if you listen to him explain the moments that the program has looked especially vulnerable in his tenure, and you sort of hear his explanation for why and what he was trying and why he is okay with it, Initially, I was flummoxed by some of those comments. Listening to it more and then seeing it again, I understand more what he's trying to do. And I think there's an honesty to his approach and an honesty to the way he talks about his approach that I think is refreshing and uh, should be appreciated. And that's about where I am with him. Has Greg Berhalter been in the bubble the entire time, by the way? Is he like, he, he must be losing his mind. Oh, man. I, yeah, he seems, if he is, I feel like he's watching 6,000 different clips of different players and is focusing in on every little tendency and strategy and finding a new approach for everything. But yes, I hope 
someone has communicated with Berhalter during these times. I hope he got out of the bubble, actually, after like the semifinals. <laughs> like, I appreciate the effort, but like, you don't need to stick around there that long, man. Um, I, I do want to say this tournament itself, like, I wanted to ask you if, like, mm-hmm. you know, if there's like one thing that stood out to you about this MLS's back tournament. I mean, for me, I really like, I mean, I like the fact that they didn't have any COVID positives yep. after the first two teams were left by the wayside. Um, but I like the stakes mm-hmm. of, of how important this has been. And when I say that we had a coach of a prominent MLS team get yep. fired because of how his team performed in this tournament, Frank DeBoer. And I like that. I mean, how often like, have we ever seen an MLS coach get fired over how an MLS team did in champions league in nope. CONCACAF? Nope. No, I'm I'm absolutely with you. And I think it shows you, like, I have no particular rooting interest in Atlanta United. I like Atlanta United. I like their fans. Uh, but I'll say that, like, it shows you how seriously they take it. It shows you why they are who they are and how they've had the success they've had, that they don't rest on their laurels. And if there's a problem, and I think Frank DeBoer was pretty clearly an issue, they're going to deal with it, even if it's a one-off tournament, even if it's a, like a series of friendlies or whatever people want to say about the competition. I think it's been much better than I expected it would be. But I think you see the seriousness of their approach and how they're constantly looking to improve and find new angles and find new ways to get new names in to have the success. I think I think it shows you the way Atlanta United have approached it, but also it shows you how important this competition has been for at least a couple teams, for sure. Well, I think even Bob Bradley, the way he was muttering yeah. to himself as he left the field after they got eliminated by Orlando, showed how upset he was that his LAFC team went out and, and went out in the way they did. Um, and now Bob Bradley, obviously I don't think is in danger of losing his job, but I do think there is going to be real discussion among LAFC fans about why don't we do better in knockout tournaments? All we need is Sebi Salazar to just show up in various places and ask Bob Bradley <laughs> questions, and we'll see how truly annoyed he was by this whole thing. Poor Sebi. Um, Poor Sebi. Oh, boy. Um, lastly here, before we go to our interview with mm-hmm. Angus McNabb. Um, MLS has just announced its plan for upcoming games, which will be in home venues, home stadiums, some of them with fans. Um, what Thoughts? What, what, how do we feel about this? Um, okay, so having just said that I was like, critical of Major League Soccer for this competition and for feeling like it wasn't going to go very well, and obviously if you're FC Dallas, for example, it does not go well, like, I think you have to, there has to be a little bit of leniency here in my mind because I think people, people want to watch games. If you can find a way to make it so that they're socially distance, distancing and they're being responsible and masks are being worn, I'm not going to go to a game. The Richmond Kickers are playing. I think they're letting in limited numbers of fans. I, that's not a, like a, a thing I'm necessarily comfortable with, but I think if people want to do that and teams feel like they can take the precautions necessary to give you some audience, to give some sort of ambiance uh, to everything that's going on, then I'm fine with it. I think it's going to be another strange couple months of having to talk about a thing where we're not sure it should be happening and we're not sure it should be happening in the way it's happening, but we're also happy it's happening. That kind of has the way uh, has been the way all of MLS coverage has been in my mind and from what I've heard. So I think we're probably going to hear more of that and more frustration with should they be reopening and should they be having fans in. But I think what they've proven so far is that they can do it responsibly and they can monitor the situation and sort of allow individual localities to influence what's happening. I think it makes sense. 
sense. I'm not necessarily comfortable with it, but I think it makes sense. I would love to hear what you have to say, given that you have a bit more expertise in these matters for any number of reasons. Yeah, uh, my wife is an infectious disease That'd expert. be the big one. That'd be the major uh, one. <laughs> yeah. um, and I may get her on the podcast soon here to give her thoughts on the MLS situation because she's an expert and I am not. I just live with one. Um, but my sense is this, is... Um, you know, MLS is doing this in some ways like the USL is because, you know, and slightly different from Major League Baseball. So Major League Baseball is having games in home venues, but no fans anywhere. MLS is having games in home venues, but like USL is going to allow fans in wearing masks, uh, small numbers in certain stadiums. The majority actually of MLS venues are not going to have any fans, it sounds like. So do keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you this, and we live in New York, which is actually, which is, you know, fingers crossed, has done a pretty good job the last couple months on the virus. We've worked really hard to get the numbers down. Um, There's no way in hell that my wife would let me go as a fan to an MLS game right now in New York. Um, And so, like, maybe as a journalist, but... I don't have a job right now, so I'm not, that's, that's kind of a moot point. <laughs> but like, we tend to be to err on the side of caution, mm-hmm. and so I do say this to everyone: just because your g- local government says you can do something, what like doesn't mean you have to do it. You know, mm-hmm. just because your local government is letting people eat indoors at restaurants doesn't mean you have to do that. Um, and so, you know, I'm I'm a little. Uh, I would be a little scared to to have fans at games, especially right now. And it depends on where you are in the country, but the virus is still rampaging in this country. And mm-hmm. I do find it odd that Dallas, which clearly had an issue in Dallas with so many of its players getting the virus, is one of the teams that's going to allow fans. It's a questionable thing. <laughs> it's a very strange thing, for sure. I think it's also... like. We can avoid politics, but I think it's also a product of no one knows entirely what the situation is or how severe or is it getting better? How much worse is it getting? And why is it getting like, I think there's so many questions that then to throw in. Oh, and people are now going to soccer games like, wait, are things normal? Things don't feel normal at all. Oh, they're going to have to sit far apart. But even then, is that a good idea? Like, I think there's so much confusion about coronavirus in this country in a way that I don't think there is in lots of other countries who have handled it better and more precisely and more succinctly or like in a better time frame. I I think that that is probably also part of it for me is that I I don't necessarily feel comfortable doing a lot of things right now, given that the rates are increasing and the United States hasn't done a very good job of combating it. So yeah, then the idea of going out and sitting in stands around a bunch of sweaty people eating food and yelling stuff at a soccer game also doesn't really fill me with a ton of confidence. But as I said, nor did the MLS's back tournament, and that has gone mostly okay. I don't think we can put the entire country in a bubble, though that may be what ends up happening. Uh, So if you don't really have that option, yes, I think I'm with you that I can say, if you want to go, that's fine, but please wear a mask. And also maybe that's not fine. Yeah, and keep in mind, MLB has had to cancel games, even without fans in in the stands, because of spread inside teams. Yep. So we'll see how USL, MLS. Yeah. We'll see how MLS does with that. Uh, they say they're going to have pretty stringent precautions. Uh, hopefully, more stringent than Nashville <laughs> and Dallas had before yep. the MLS's back tournament. So, 
In any case, thanks for joining me here, yeah. Taylor. It's been a really nice discussion. Yeah, th- thank you for having me. I think we went uh, maybe double the length that we normally go, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> but lots of stuff to talk about, lots of lots of news across the board. So I feel like we did a good job of covering it all, even if uh, maybe we went a little bit long. The MLS is back. Tournament continues. And while you can't cheer from your home stadium, you can win a stadium in a box thanks to Heineken 00. Share a photo or video of how you hashtag cheers from home on Twitter for a chance to win a package full of beer gear, stadium eats, and a real stadium seat. The MLS Stadium Experience delivered to your front door. There are 23 packages from 23 U.S. stadiums, but only one lucky winner per team. Must be 21 plus. To learn more and score some free Heineken 00, visit HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. That's HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. Heineken 00. Now you can. Now, here is my interview with Angus McNabb. Our guest now is Angus McNabb. He is a longtime figure in the North American soccer community who is now managing consultant for York 9 FC, a team in the Canadian Premier League that will be part of the league's bubble tournament, the Island Games, which starts this Thursday on Prince Edward Island. Gus, thanks for coming on the show. No problem at all. Great to uh, catch up with you, Grant. Yeah, this is something I've been looking forward to for a while, actually, the chance to talk to you about the Canadian Premier League. And, and before we get to the specifics on, on what you're doing in Canada, could you give our listeners a sense of, of your story, where you're from and what you've done over the years in the soccer world, including here in the U.S.? Yeah, so I um, really got involved in, in soccer rather than um, rugby, which was my sport growing up. Um, when I started with uh, Opta, the sports data company, who are the official providers of the Canadian Premier League, but also Major League Soccer, uh, the English Premier League, the USL, various other competitions all around the globe. Um, and from there, things evolved as they do when you sort of get into a company that's on a, a growth trajectory. I uh, did a lot of work once I moved to the States with uh, Major League Soccer. Initially, their digital team, then their broadcast team, then all of the sort of national broadcasters in English and Spanish. Uh, and the position really evolved, a lot of access to GMs and, and worked with people who were really on this cusp of data analytics. What does it mean for uh, soccer in particular? And so my, my career has really spiraled from there, to be honest, and uh, made some great friends along the way. Um, and now I, I find myself uh, working with York 9 and the Canadian Premier League up in Canada. So what is the Canadian Premier League? So the Canadian Premier League is um, the top tier soccer competition in Canada. Um, we have tier one status, the same as Major League Soccer does. Um, and the league is about to start next week, year two. Um, year one was phenomenally successful last year. The growth of soccer in the country meant that the league needed um, a competition. There are now 190,000 more participants in soccer than there are in hockey in Canada. Um, so for a country of that size um, and a country of such a rich sporting history to not have their own competition um, and be on the, uh, the schedule for the World Cup as well um, as a host, we needed to sort of really kick on um, and aid the development of football in the country. 
and so the Canadian Premier League was formed. Um, and it's a fantastic privilege to be a part of it. Um, we're now at eight teams with the addition of uh, Atletico Ottawa, um, who are owned by Atletico Madrid. They came into the league in February of this year. And uh, the Island Games will be their debut on the pitch in uh, the Canadian Premier League as well. So where is your club, York 9 FC, located? Why is it called York 9? And how did you get connected to the club? So the club is, um, we're just on uh, the outskirts of Toronto. Um, we actually play within the, uh, the GTA at York Lions Stadium um, as our, our home venue. Uh, the nine symbolizes the nine municipalities within York Region. Um, and, and those coming together um, to really support and, and drive football fandom um, within the region. Um, Ontario has a, a rich soccer history, and I think across men's and women's national teams, I think it's probably supplied about 65%. can't remember the exact number, but it's between 60 65% of men's and women's um, Canadian national team players over the years. So we sit in a fantastic catchment area, a fantastic area, and... Uh, we're really, really hoping to, uh, to grow the sport there. Um, my journey to York 9, um, I've been involved multiple ways with uh, sports data companies, and that's probably initially uh, where I came to it, where I was consulting with a company out of Montreal called SportLogic. Um, they're actually the league's official uh, broadcast tracking partner and do some pretty innovative things there. So I learned about the league from that, um, did a lot of work with, uh, Oliver Gage, who is their head of on-field recruitment and analysis. And that sort of evolved into discussions with the commissioner, uh, David Clanahan, with uh, the head of Canada Soccer Business, uh, Scott Mitchell, on where things were going. And, and they introduced me to the Baldazara family, who were uh, the owners of York 9. Um, we seemed to hit it off, got on very well. They were looking at some uh, structural and leadership changes at the club going into year two. Um, and, and things progressed from there, really. And so I, I started my role um, probably properly um, when we got into to February. Um, it seems a lifetime ago, but the Christmas and New Year break, um, the way holidays fell, no one was really back to work until probably around the 13th um, with people taking extended holiday there. So we had a lot to do, but even at the very off, um, just even pre-Christmas, had to help the club with their draft board for uh, international player draft and things we were looking at there. So it was thrown right into it. And um, the way things have gone this year, um, it's really been thrown right into it. Yeah. What do you do there in your job at York 9? Managing consultant is, seems like a bit of a, a catch-all phrase. Yes, um, it is a little bit. Um, so effectively, I do... Uh, and and run the uh, the business side of the club um, as a CEO club president would do, um, and I'm also GM on the on the football side as well. So I work with our head coach um, Jimmy Brennan, who also performs the role of our technical director, um, and help put systems structures in place that allow us to uh, recruit. And I think we've done a good job of that this year, and I think we'll see the benefit of uh, a lot of the system structures um, as we move into the Island Games not just on a player and a personnel level, but we've invested um, a lot and sought out strategic partners in a, in a number of areas that I, I'm really, really proud of the performance and technology stack that we've put together to give our guys the very, very best chance of success. So that ranges from everything from doing a 
a deal with Statsport across our uh, GPS and sort of player wellness and tracking um, and getting that information sort of live at our training sessions, live during games to the bench um, to help with decision making, to our squad video room and video analysis platform with Coach, uh, with Coach Logic, um, to even putting our coaches and some of our young players through uh, courses with Coach Tech and with, uh, with Player Tech as well to specifically look at data and, and give them sort of evidence-based analysis on where and why they should be taking shots, creating opportunities with high expected goal value. So we've moved things on where I would, where I would really want to, um, where I was always sort of frustrated that the game wasn't going in some clubs when I was working around the US. So we've started the first steps on that journey um, to becoming a club that looks at these things very measured, very calculated, um, and it allows us the best chance of success. I mean, as a data guy, that's one of the questions I had for you was how much you're using data in what you do. Are you also using it on player recruitment at all? Um, and, and, and how much do you, would you say you're using data-wise at your club more than most clubs? I think than most clubs at our level, a lot. Um, and sort of most clubs who are, quite frankly, two years old. Um, so you compare us to expansion franchises anywhere in the US, around the world. We're doing, I think, a phenomenal job with taking data in from multiple sources to aid our decision making. We have the physical data there. We also have a, an agreement above and beyond the league's deal with Opta to help us with our recruitment, our analysis. Uh, we're the only club in the league, as far as I know at this point, to take on a director of uh, on-field analytics in Sam Gregory, who's a guy that I've worked with before at Opta and at SportLogic. Um, we also have created these these other sort of platforms for the guys to view data, um, to, to view sort of video um, across the club. And then on the recruitment side, we're doing a lot of work over and above what the league does with the 21st club as well. Um, so we have access to some information there that helps us look at not just at the players' raw data, but they're sort of using their um, world performance league. We look at the leagues, the teams that players are coming from and where they stack up on their sort of offensive, defensive, overall strength, the players' contribution to that. Um, and how that would potentially relate to us at, at York Nine. So, it's it's in some ways quite small steps. We've got a, a very smaller budget to do so, um, but we're trying to in a salary cap competition. You've got to try and maximise your advantage, um, and and that's where we sit and and what we're trying to piece together. Now, you had a sale of a player, Emilio Estevez, to ADO in the Hague, and. Is that part of your philosophy as a club to want to be a selling club? And how did that deal come together? That deal in particular, um, Emilio performed very well for um, Chinese Taipei in World Cup qualification. I think he had a particularly good game against Australia, um, which put him on people's radars outside of his performances for us in the Canadian Premier League. Um, so like anything, clubs pick up, scout, look for somebody and... Um, Emilio caught their attention. Um, the key for it for me was that it was probably earlier days of the pandemic and my timescales are all completely lost on when exactly this was over the last few months. But um, we, 
we effectively, I, I think I really tried to make the decision that if we were going to do this, we would do it with speed. Um, and so it was a very, very quick negotiation process um, with the, the club president um, and Emilio's agent. And literally within initial interest contact on the Sunday evening um, to signed agreement, we had had it done within sort of between 36, 48 hours. Um, and that was just what I, I felt was needed at, at that moment in time. We had to move with speed um, because of the uncertainty. So that was done. And then we processed Emilio's international transfer uh, certificate when the window opened in uh, the start of July for the Netherlands. And um, he's gone there, he's training, um, and we just wish him all the luck in the world. Um, in terms of, do we want to be a selling club? I, I think, quite frankly, there's only five clubs in the world um, that don't have the luxury of saying we're not a selling club. Um, so we have to look to develop a sustainable business model um, and for me, that will mean that there's, there's some very hard discussions over the coming years with players that we've had in our environment for a long time in that we have to consistently look to have a young squad that has asset value for us to move on. So this year, I think we have the squad average age down significantly um, and sort of we have a, a couple of incredible veteran presences in the squad, in Kyle Porter, in Roger Thompson, um, and even other guys like Ryan Telfer, who's come back to the club, Nate Ingham, our goalkeeper, Manny Aparicio, who, who, Joe Dechara, guys who are on the younger side of that veteran status, but they have a responsibility to bring through our youngsters. Um, I think we now have, I'm um, just looking at my board here now, uh, one, two, three, four five, six. I think we have six guys on our roster under the age of 20 um, on our 23-man roster for the Island Games this year. So that's a big change for us. Average age of the squad down to sort of 23 and a half. Um, that's really important for the future of the club and building sustainability. Um, the league has an under 21 minutes rule where there is a commitment to play in a normal season, three players under the age of 21 who play at least a thousand minutes. Um, and that's important for the future of the game in Canada, let alone for us as a club that is looking to develop talent. So we've now restructured because our guys, uh, Emilio was one, uh, Diadine Abzi is the other, our left back. They aged out of our under 21 process at the end of last season and we actually didn't have any backfill. So We've made significant strides on that with Lowell Wright, who turns 17, I think, in the middle of August, um, signing a, a long-term deal with the club that could run to the end of 2024. Um, with Julian Altabelli, who was away with uh, the Canadian under-17s last year at the World Cup. Um, Isaiah Johnson, uh, Max Ferrari, Ija Halley, um, Zeke Carrasco, like... All of these guys that we have within our squad are young, very, very talented players um, that we feel can come into our environment now um, and move on. In addition to an already talented and young Canadian core with the likes of the guys that we mentioned, Ryan Telfer, Manny Aparicio, Michael Petrazzo, um, all in the squad and ready to contribute. We mentioned the Canadian Premier League is having a bubble tournament starts this Thursday on Prince Edward Island with the evocative title, The Island Games. 
how did all that come together? Yeah, there's, um, there was some debate on the title. There was a few people um, wanting to go UFC and, uh, and go for soccer or football island. But uh, the island games, <laughs> I think, is fantastic. So uh, to Roy, our sort of marketing lead at the league, he's done a phenomenal job piecing all of that together. Um, but I, one of the most pleasing things for me in working in this league, working with all the guys at uh, an ownership level and sitting at the Board of Governors, has been the way that they've dealt with things during the pandemic. Um, there's no two ways about it. We've, we've caught a lot of flack as a league on social media for not being um, as vocal and speaking out. But the reality is it's a pandemic. And if everyone had a crystal ball and we're going to start on this date, we can guarantee safety, we can do this, we would have absolutely loved to have done it. But... And we got it wrong in terms of we could have been updating people, even just saying we're meeting at this frequency, we're doing this, and we didn't. And and that's a misstep that we have to learn from. But the league generally, um, the response has been nothing short of phenomenal. Um, Getting sort of absolute top-tier advice um, from people who actually sit on the World Health Organization's task force on the pandemic... Um, listening and the work that's gone into this with PEI and their chief public health officer, with Canada's chief public health officer. Um, It is absolutely second to none to, first of all, maintain the safety of those who live on Prince Edward Island, um, but also our players, our coaches, everyone who's going into that bubble. So the steps and how we got here, I, I remember sort of being on a call very, very early on with the board um, at at the start of March. And even as quick as when this started to happen, the decision was, right, Okay, we need to get Atletico Ottawa back from Madrid. We need to get York 9 back from Florida on training camp um, to Canada, get them safe, stay isolated for sort of 14 days immediately when we got home. Um, And our guys did a phenomenal job with that. There was an incredibly frustrating period for our players and staff in isolation uh, beyond that 14 days, not doing anything, not training, just trying to do standard workouts at home. But then a phased return to training where we weren't pushing against the government, we were following their health directives, we were, okay, this is what we're allowed to do now in individual, this is what we're allowed to do now as groups of five, then as groups of ten, and some teams, even still, as we go to PEI, um, are not in full phase three sort of training um, and have followed those directives to the letter. Um, and so I, I just cannot commend in terms of uh, the, the spirit of our players, um, the spirit of our fans to actually respect all of these directives and get to the point where we can have a season. And um the approach is something I'm, I'm very, very proud of as a group and, and also as a group of owners um, being absolutely unanimous in our support to play the season um, as soon as we knew that we had all of these steps in place. So it's, um, it's been a bit of a privilege, to be honest, to be um, involved with and, and class those people at league head office and the other owners and team presidents, CEOs around the league as, as genuine partners in all of this. How do we see these games on video in the US? How are they seen in Canada? So we have a, a great partner um, with uh, One Soccer um, 
it's uh, a complete and again I think it speaks to the the future vision of the league um, in from day one launching an OTT service um, and working with uh, Media Pro to develop One Soccer. So I believe within the US, um, One Soccer is available um, as, a, as a mobile app for download and uh, people can subscribe from there. Within Canada, um, we're just finalizing the, uh, the TV picks as we, as we speak this morning um, with our sort of linear broadcast partner as well in CBC. Um, and also the, the, the event is available on One Soccer there as well. Um, we'll make sure that the league website has everything updated for the uh, international audiences as well. Um, but I, I believe One Soccer is available in a, a number of territories all over the world um, for people to subscribe to. And there will be, and there is, sorry, already within our clubs, there's been fantastic support from our, our season seat members um, and sort of our, our partners there and our fans um, in joining what we've classed as the collective, um, which is a, a digital membership with fans where they've sort of moved across um, their season seats for this year and they receive a, a team jersey, they receive the subscription to One Soccer and a number of other benefits and, and giveaways the whole way through. Ourselves as a club, um, our members of the collective will um, be drawn out of a hat for the jerseys off our players' backs um, for our last uh, group game in the competition. And we, we just try to do all we can to say thank you for their support um, because we know it's been a very uh, testing time for everyone. Um, and without our, our fans, there's no real point in us doing this, just going to an island to play soccer. So we really appreciate them and um, it's it's been a phenomenal response and not just to this and the collective but our our own club's healthcare heroes initiative that we launched back in uh, April and putting that uh, that patch on the jerseys and, and everything there to sort of celebrate our, our frontline workers um, the sort of fact that clubs across um, the league as well are our sales of face masks go to charitable clauses and everything there um, for us it's the same uh, Vaughan McKenzie Hospital um, that that we have sort of the uh, the jersey patch raising funds for as well. So it's um, yeah, I, there are a lot of things to be uh, very proud of in getting this season up and running. But the support of our fans in some of these initiatives is is certainly one of them. We're recording this, by the way, on Friday morning. Even though we're coming out on Monday morning, just want to make clear on that. Um, in terms of expansion of the Canadian Premier League, you've got eight teams now. How many would the league like to get to through expansion? This is going to sound like a, a tried and tested expansion um, answer, but it, it continues to evolve. Um, I think that there are a number of very, very strong markets and some already identified ownership groups. Um, we had a board call not that long ago um, and expansion comes up on on every call um, and it comes up because there's significant interest um, i think obviously the travel restrictions that exist with the pandemic mean that it's difficult for people to get in market now and see and really develop this but um, the most positive thing and one of the really really strong things about expansion and the way the league has been structured is that the, um, the creation of uh, CSB, Canada Soccer Business, um, that the owners have put together as well as, as a commercial vehicle for football in Canada. Um, and, and what we offer um, in expansion 
make it incredibly um, popular um, and incredibly sort of interesting as a, as a value proposition for people to invest in uh, not just Canada, but, but the North American soccer market. Um, we have a direct route through with the Canadian Championship into uh, the CONCACAF Champions League. And a couple of our teams performed ourselves at York 9. We were very, very close against Montreal Impact last year. Um, a couple of injury time lapses and could have been different for us. Um, Cavalry FC performed very, very well and knocked out Vancouver Whitecaps. So we're not a million miles away and we will continue to evolve and develop as a league. And we want to be challenging um, these, we want to be challenging these teams uh, to really, really push on um, and compete in that competition. If you're a prospective owner wanting to start a Canadian Premier League team, how does that level of investment compare to starting, say, a USL team? They're comparable. Um, they're, they're, they're comparable in terms of things there. I think... Um, it's not something that we're going to get into like right now in terms of direct numbers or anything like that. But um, with anything, the, the critical thing, um, expansion fees are expansion fees. They go up, down, they, they move with sort of uh, the growth of the league. As we've seen, it's been well documented with Major League Soccer. I think what we will look for as a league is sustainability. Um, we're an eight-team league in eight very, very sustainable markets right now um, that are growing, working very, very hard to develop and evolve. What we look at is a lot of things around the infrastructure piece that come with that um, and making sure that the stadium, the fan experience, um, the market we go into is one that is really on an upward trajectory and set for growth. So we need to uh, get that right as a league. Um, and that's not my job with York Nine, as I said, uh, the commissioner, um, David Clanahan, is a phenomenal builder of businesses. Um, his track record with uh, Tim Hortons and the growth of that as a Canadian company um, is quite exceptional. And uh, Scott Mitchell as well is uh, one of, if not up there with David, with others, the best um, executives in Canadian sport, in my opinion. Um, and having those guys at the helm um, sort of steering all of this for us as a, a group of owners and partners in um, the Canadian Premier League and Canada soccer business, um, it is a huge, huge strength and advantage for us all. Just to wrap up, uh, what are you hoping to achieve with your club in the coming years? Some of the things that we've spoken about are being um, at the very heart and forefront of our community. Um, we we can all say about the power of sort of soccer, the power of football, and, and that's great, but unless we actually live it and mean it, it's very token and empty. So um, for us to be successful, um, we have to be a club that people within our immediate catchment aspire to play for. Um, we did some work in the off-season where we, we sort of had a bit of a reset. We set a new set of core values for the club, um, a new set of core values, a new vision, a new mission. Um, and they're, they're all up on our, our website. There's nothing sort of secret about that. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to see. Um, and the sort of the mission in terms of when we condense it down, we're about making memories. Um, that, that, that works on the level of for our staff and people in their day-to-day -day work environment. That works for our players when they reflect on their careers. And ultimately, that's for our fans as well. Um, and what we want to do in giving people that first look into sport, that 
exceptional moment um, that ties them and forever bonds them with football. Um, we want to be that. We want to be that reason. Um, and in terms of the vision for the club, um, we, want, we don't want to be judged on a national, a Canadian, a CPL level. There is no reason why initiatives, things we do, can't be looked at from anyone all over the globe and say that that is best in class. Um, yes, there are challenges in budget. Yes, there are challenges in scaling and other things. But why can't we set a standard? Um, and that's the challenge we give to our staff every day. Can we do those things that work towards our mission, achieve our, our vision? Um, and when we judge why are we doing this, does it sit with our four core values? Angus McNabb is managing consultant for York 9 FC of the Canadian Premier League. Their bubble tournament, the Island Game, starts this Thursday on Prince Edward Island. Gus, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good luck in the tournament. Thanks very much, Grant. Great to catch up. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Angus McNabb. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm -hmm.